Kathy. And I'm Justin. And, and this, this is, is Comicsverse. Welcome to another episode of the Comics First Podcast. We are in the midst of a series on the best comics you've never read. In fact, these are comics that probably many people have read. But if you mostly mess with superhero comics, then hopefully you're getting a bunch of new material that you're going to dive into uh, as soon as we're finished or maybe in the midst of the comic podcast. It's okay if you read and listen at the same time. You can find this podcast in many places while you're reading. And one of them is the iTunes, I guess, and like SoundCloud. I don't know. Look around. Go to comicsverse.com. Go the there most first. lax intro ever. Oh, you know, just Google it. I don't know. Yeah. Use your favorite search engine and look up Comics First because we have a website, which is really great. It's comicsverse.com and you can find the podcast there. And then we also have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash comicsverse. We have a really amazing Instagram, <laughs> hashtag comicsverse, Twitter at comicsverse. Uh, we have a great YouTube channel, and uh, Justin says we're revamping the videos and putting a bunch of really talented people totally in charge of that, so you'll have a lot to look forward to there. And I think that covers just about everything in terms of where you want to look for comics first, because obviously you do. Uh, we're telling you about comic books. I'm Kathy, a co-host. Justin's not here. It'll be fine, because <laughs> I have other people who are really smart with me who have read the book we're talking about today which is Blankets by Craig Thompson. And so how about we go around and introduce everyone? We'll go in a circle starting on my right with Angela. Hi, guys. This is Angela. Hi. According to Justin, I am the OG intern. Uh, I don't know really what else I am, but <laughs> you're <laughs> amazing. Excited to be here. <laughs> Great. And then, oh, uh, you guys can't tell. But <laughs> Skype's up next. Yeah, Skype is up next. So it's uh, Jamie and then Chris. Um, well, I'm Jamie, as we've already said, and I was an intern, and now I'm an editor, and me and Kathy both read Blankets a long time ago, and are really excited to talk about it today. Yep. And then, hi, Chris. Welcome. Hello. I'm, my name is Chris, as been said before, uh, at least twice. I'm from Ireland, and I, I'm an intern. I st started two days ago. <laughs> I talked to Justin and uh, Jamie uh, on Thursday and I just read blankets today so I kind of got asked to do it uh, last night while I volunteered and I'm rambling sorry <laughs> I'll stop now We're, I think rambling is the main mode of communication we use on the podcast <laughs> so you'll be in a good spot with us uh, okay let's keep <laughs> oh, I'm other Chris I write stuff for comics first among other things I don't really know what else to say so I'm going to move it along. Cool. I'm Brian. I am a staff writer and social media specialist at Comicsverse. I'm also the number three ranked member of the Jamie Rice fan club here. <laughs> Behind Justin and Kay, who aren't here. So I guess like I'm bumped up to lead fan club person for this podcast. You're acting fan club president. I, I'm, yeah, I'm acting captain. <laughs> I feel like I should do it like a plug. Like, if you would like to apply to be in Jamie Rice's fan club, send emails of resumes, too. <laughs> Well, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of applicants to whatever that fake email address is after they hear Jamie's great summary of blankets, which is where we're starting. Yay! Everyone's going to want to be in my fam club once they hear how I just like pulled together this bullshit summary <laughs> from this book that I really like but haven't thought about in a long time. Um, but Blankets is by Craig Thompson, as we said, and it's a memoir comic, so it is about Craig Thompson. So our protagonist, Craig, it's, is going through a lot of changes in his life. It's very much a coming-of-age tale. 
And he's from a very religious family, Christian religious family, which I relate to heavily and will come up, I'm sure. And basically, it's the story of him going through a lot of issues with that upbringing. He has some issues of sexual abuse. He has issues with the church, like in general, issues of bullying. Um, And then it goes into like his first love, first romance, and then kind of it's at the end a reflection of him looking back at the past and kind of accepting it. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much the big points. Yeah, that sounded perfect to me and everyone else is nodding in agreement. So uh, next segment, we'll move on to a really great in-depth discussion. So we're back. And I guess there are a couple ways we could go about this. We could either uh, dive right in with what everyone is aching to say most, or we could sort of go chronologically through the book. Do do we have any votes on what makes the most sense? I like the first one. Okay. All right. I think, yeah, let's get right to the meat of it right away. So who is most aching to say something? I nominate Brian because he said he was. Yeah, Brian's shrugging in a really enthusiastic way. (laughs) Brian's just like, don't fail me, uh, technology. Um, yeah, I, you know, uh, my biggest takeaway from this book, and I'm not, this is going to sound like I'm disrespecting Craig Thompson, I'm not. I had some issues with the narrative, and I had some issues with it from a literature standpoint that under normal circumstances would have made me maybe like it less, but I really connected with it to the point where I kind of overlooked anything that I even kind of didn't like about it. I went to Catholic school, religious school, from the time I was four years old to when I graduated high school at 18. And I didn't come from a really, really like super religious family or anything, but they just, they wanted to send me to, you know, private school. And up here in New York, that, that's what private school basically is, usually a religious institution. And I, uh, this is a really, this is a really true story. And I know it's not relating to this, but I think people understand when I was in first grade, we had a teacher who was a nun and I was in first grade 95. So this woman at the time had to be in her seventies. So we're talking like pre Vatican two, pre Vatican two, she probably became a nun. And, uh, she said that divorced people, when they got married, their marriages weren't real in the eyes of God. So I being a precociously cute seven year old asked her, uh, both my parents are divorced. What does that mean for me? And she said that meant that I don't exist in the eyes of God. So pretty much from the time I was seven years old, I've had a very complex relationship with religion. And uh, in fact, I've always said that by the time I hit high school and then went through high school, Catholic school made me an atheist. But so kind of the, the themes of this book really, really hit home for me, obviously. And like it, it kind of really touched me in a special place. No pun intended. I I knew. Okay, Brian. You pointed right to me. I point. You can't see it. I pointed right at Chris because I knew he. I knew what he was gonna do before he even did it. Yeah, that that that's kind of my um. That that was kind of my first hot take from the book. What I took away from it. Thanks. Yeah, I I went to Catholic school too, and. I think uh, this is probably something we'll talk about later. I I have some mixed feelings about the book now, and I I still sort of think that in a way it does like capture some of the really intense feelings that you have when you're, you know, late teens, early 20s, that kind of rebellion, like when a lot of people go through their first major atheist phase. And uh, but so one of the things that I think is probably an immature impulse on my part, but something that I still really appreciate is the way this book doesn't shy away from depicting the brutality of childhood. Uh, And I think that's 
<laughs> it's a really sad place to start off, but I think it's a universal experience that no matter how sheltered you are, childhood isn't totally safe from things that are truly scary, from things that are truly heartbreaking, from really complicated and difficult to understand situations. And in terms of the, because the book isn't black and white, I think the moment of like sexual assault in this childhood is depicted really starkly and really challengingly. And that's something that I still really love about this book that all of the the brutality is really brutal and the beauty is also really beautiful any other first impulses oh, okay. we can't got? see my hand yeah i'll go <laughs> I call um, when i first i had no idea what i was getting into when i got put on the podcast <laughs> so when i looked at the the book when i went to read it when i started off i was like uh, i don't know if this is going to be my cup of tea i don't know if i'm gonna like it but by the end totally all about it it's Dope. It completely connected on like multiple levels. So when I started, I was extremely skeptical. Like I was like, I don't know if I'm even gonna want to like get through this. But I got through it. I don't. I don't even know if I can like pick up anything like analytical that I didn't like because I got so engrossed in it. Why not have gone to Catholic school? I went to uh, Protestant private school until I was like in fourth grade. I mean, in church and everything. Sipped the Kool Aid. Went to youth groups. Like these youth group retreats. Like were almost identical to the ones I can remember as a kid and I'm looking around like at all my friends who are like around and being like the most any you want to call Christian people I'm sitting here like yo we're supposed to be like these good people and whatever so the whole like skepticality like I thought about going into like religion I actually majored in religion in college which funny enough learning about religion actually turns you the most opposite away from it because you actually see the history and the contradictions and just the general shittiness that comes about it but the whole thing was like interesting like I can relate to almost every aspect like the you want to call it the loneliness in childhood loneliness and like as you're growing up the insecurities like you're not sure what you're doing you find your first love and it's like oh holy shit your world opens up and then like oh you're supposed to have this rock and you're a god and then you start questioning things and they're like no don't question this just accept it this is even though it's contradictory and you look around the world it's like Oh, all this shit's up. Why? What? You think God's supposed to take care of this shit? So I connected to it on multiple levels, and I thought like it was like amazing. Like I said you really see like the growth of the character and the growth of life, and as we can all see, everyone has sort of had similar experiences of growing up, at least in some sort of religious background of some sort, and then coming away from it once your eyes are kind of opened up after you get through that childhood phase. So. Yeah. Next. I'll go. Uh, just because I, I'm going to like lose all the thoughts I had in my head if I don't say anything. Um, but much like everyone who else spoke, I went to uh, Catholic school or I went to like religious school all of my life. And I think that that like, really applies to why I like the book so much. Because I think that Brian is probably correct. And I looked at it again today and I was like, oh, maybe this isn't quite as perfect as I imagined it was. But I think that that religious stuff always really I re- heavily related to it. And I think like Chris was saying, like I drank the Kool-Aid, like when I was in Catholic school for a long time, I went to like all the camps and like I wanted and I was very like much like Craig, I was very much like, I want to understand this. And like, this is clearly like what you have to do to do the right thing. And I'm going to do this. And so I first read the book when I was in high school and I was very much kind of like in the same place that Craig's in later on in the book where he's very much rejecting things. So I think that it was more poignant to me then, but I still feel the poignancy, but I have to say that speaking of drinking the Kool-Aid, there's this story I tell people all the time and I think it's relevant. I went to this Catholic camp, which had like, it was exactly the same as the one that Craig goes to. And there was a moment when I was 13 where you had to go up to the mountain and you had to like pray and speak to God. And so we're all doing that. And of course, like there's a counselor there and like nobody's like going to speak to God. And I'm sitting there and I just hear this voice and it goes, hey, 
And I started hysterical crying. And the counselor walked over. She goes, what's wrong? I go, God just spoke to me. And she's like, what did he say? And I was like, he said, hey. And she's like, did he say anything else? I was like, no. She's like, oh my God, you must have a really deep connection. And I wonder now what that like 17 year old woman thought of me. like just sitting there crying. Um, but I feel like that's very, like, I don't know. I just think that's a funny story in general. But I think that that's the best part about the book is if you've been raised in a really deep level of Christianity, a deeply analytical version of it, it can really your brain as you get older and you have to try and accommodate all of the things you learn. Um, so even though I would agree that I think that there are definitely things that kind of like raise flags for me now, that's the Christianity statements in this book are like the strongest thing I've ever read. So yeah, that's all I got. Great. Angela or other Chris, did you have any introductory remarks you wanted to make? Chris, um, did you... Well, um, I, I, well, as I said before, I'm from Ireland, so uh, we're rampant with Catholics. Okay. Yeah, like uh, religion is always, was always a big part of I suppose our household, um, you know, going to do the, the rosary at night at eight o'clock, all the family sitting around and um, all the mumbling and going to church and all of that and hearing what the priest had to say. And even when I when I left home when I was 18, um, I, I remember a while that for a while I actually joined or partook in a, a church up in Dublin. And I ended up, you know, doing some of the stuff in here, like teaching Sunday school and leading songs and all that. And I I kind of drifted away from that, but an awful lot of that kind of spoke to me, brought up an awful lot of memories of what I kind of experienced myself and um, not bad memories as such, but kind of like you, you kind of, when you're in something, you don't think about, you, you kind of accept it, but when you're outside it, you kind of start analyzing it and looking back. So a good team through this book kind of did that um, for me. I don't think there was any times where I saw a picture of Jesus turning towards me and smiling but um but yeah it, not only in that level did it, i suppose speak to me but i mean I, when i started reading this today i think i was 50 pages in and i thought i don't know if i can read any more of this because it was so brutal without being cliche you know it, childhood is great but it's also harsh and it's also it can be cruel and we can and kids can be cruel to each other and, and loving to each other so there was a lot there that really just kind of hit them and powerful and, and, and very unique. So yeah, that, that's my opening statement. <laughs> so yeah, far. But, uh, yeah. Uh, so I grew up pretty practical. I'd say I went to public school, didn't really grew up. With Get out of the club. <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> uh, didn't know about Santa Claus, Easter bunny or like anything like that. So I never really had anything to believe in growing up. So reading something like this where well, I've read other stuff, about religions but like it's interesting to see how like kids are forced in a situation where they have to believe something that's like you can't really prove is real but like the adults are so assertive that it is it's it's really interesting to see that because the kids are always like they want to be accepted they want like they want their parents to show that they're good kids and stuff like that so it's it's interesting that they have to be forced into a scenario where it's almost like they're lying kind of about what they're doing in church in a way i don't know how to say it but it's it's definitely interesting there is i think i don't know if this is true but i have to believe that like even someone without a really strong religious experience when they were younger would relate to the same feeling of disillusionment as you grow up because i i think even secular parents have myths that they share with their kids like like even just growing up being told that you're supposed to help people who are poor and in trouble and then you go to a big city and, and someone tells you to keep walking when there's a homeless person asking for money. Like uh, people 
have moments like that where you realize that a lot of adults have been teaching you things that they believe everyone should be doing, but they're not able to do themselves, maybe? Well, like, in a way, childhood childhood is its own myth. I mean, uh, not to get too, like, rambly psychological, but, like, anyone who's lucky to grow up with a, chi- with a childhood where they're taken care of, they, they're not, you know, forced to child labor at a young age or something like that. Like, you kind of develop this sense of the world, whether it's a very religious sense, a very secular sense, somewhere in the middle. And you develop this very distinct worldview, but it's the worldview of a child. And, you know, as people, as you grow old and people start treating you not like a child, your entire worldview, at some point, whether you, whether you come to terms with it very quickly or some people never come to terms with it at all, at some point, the entire worldview you have crumbles and this entire new worldview of adulthood has to take hold. Yeah, I think that's well said, and probably something that we see happening on different levels in the book. And right, yeah, of- I, I, like I definitely think that as much as I said, like the religious stuff, and that really connected with me. Even if you kind of strip that away, or you're not looking at that as the major factor, just the concept of growing up is very eloquently handled in this book. I thought. Yeah, and the first time I read it, I think I connected more with the story of falling in love for the first time than I I did with the childhood elements because that's just where I was in my life. And I see some nodding. Maybe this would be a good place. We could uh, cut the religion segment, although it'll probably come up again because it's such a big part of the book. So in our little break, we talked a bit about what we want to cover next. And I think two obvious ways to go would be love or family. I already said love, but I think in the midst of talking about Craig and Raina's relationship, we'll have to talk about family because her family is such a a huge part of their romance in the end. But so I'll just say to kick us off that I read this when I was in college and at the time I was dating my current fiance. Um, We've been together for a very long time, but we hadn't been together very long at that point. And we were apart because I was away at school and he was still at home. And so I felt uh, very like a total tragic lover and that the whole world was against me. And whenever we were together, it was always a really intense nested up in a room experience because we wouldn't have much time together and we were young and so we didn't have jobs and so we could spend days at a time just hanging out with each other. And so like now at a distance, having read the book again, I think that some of what the Craig character invests in Raina is probably something that would make the feminist in me a little uncomfortable. She's her own human being and not meant to teach him a lesson. But at the time, and still, I think their romance is really appealing in a lot of ways and certainly rendered really beautifully, just the depictions of their intimacy. And although it's possibly problematic, Reyna's perfection is really, really seductive uh, in its purity and perfection. So that's what I really latched onto the first time. And we're going to talk about their relationship right now. <laughs> uh, I didn't, uh, I should ask a question maybe <laughs> instead of like, oh, I had all these thoughts. Uh, how about you guys? Any thoughts along the same lines as my weird ones? I like um, how you go, Kat, we talked about it in the break and I'm like, yeah, we talked about questions in the break. And yeah, you're like, we didn't come up with thoughts. anyone. We didn't come up with questions. <laughs> what do you guys think about the stuff I said? No, let's have a question. You Okay, how relatable was their romance to everyone else? Do we think that it was a universally understandable representation of young love? I think so, at least in my 
experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know about anyone else. I think that, to add on to what Chris said, I think that that's definitely true just in the sense that, especially because it's a memoir comic, you get that feeling of like looking back on the past, like every moment, the beginning that happened with this person was really beautiful and perfect. And I think that whenever I look back at kind of my first relationship, like especially like the first beginning of it, everything is like seductive about it and beautiful and perfect and really romantic. Like everything's really cute and like... I don't want to say beautiful again, but it's it's like gorgeous. Like I can't even begin to describe it. I don't even think I think of my relationship as gorgeous as it's depicted in blankets. But I like to imagine that I looked that good when I was like in love. <laughs> and then you get old and cynical and you're like, this person. Like, <laughs> exactly. Well, I have like, I, I know I have a weird take on this because I've been dating the same person since I was 15 and I'm 27 now. Um, old. I am old. <laughs> I'm ancient, man. But it's interesting because something that Jamie said, and it's like, you know, I I completely understand critiquing the perfection of the Rena character. But I almost, I didn't necessarily see it as like, oh, she is the stereotypical dream girl as much as the memoir really crafted this very probably idealized uh, version of their relationship of someone looking back like 10, 15 years later. I don't know how old Craig was when he wrote this. But, like, I can tell you, and it's funny, because, like I said, I've been dating the same person, but even kind of when I think back to, like, when we were 15, 16 years old, it feels like two different people, obviously, and it it, it probably is a lot more perfect in my mind than, than it was at that time. Like, it, it becomes idealized, and that was the vibe that I got from the relationship in the book, not so much that she was, like, the perfect, like, manic pixie dream girl or whatever, but more that he had idealized this relationship that they had into this this perfect memory and when he revisits it and kind of like all uh, like all people do with memories when he revisits it over the course of his life he's probably filtered out the bad things and kind of really only focuses on the good moments to the point where it becomes this like nostalgic dream phase almost i guess to uh jump on that i'm about to get real personal but i'm gonna try not to get too personal but the hop on that like looking back at it i can relate to it as like being a generally like lonely person for a certain period of time and then having your first relationship is oh here's this person i'm similar to i can open up to i felt like that was the big it wasn't perfection it was here's an outlet because if you look at like the whole book up until that point he got sexually abused he got abused at school he was kind of like not he drawing was his only outlet but even then because of the whole religious aspect it kind of always felt like it was like this is what i want to do but i can't do it because it doesn't honor god so it was finally he was using the relationship i don't want to say as a crutch but as a final outlet to be himself because up until that point he was kind of like balled up and never wanted to be himself at school or around family and even the one thing that he loved doing and wanted to do drawing still couldn't have that whole open connection do you want to call it life for himself and i thought he felt that in the relationship and then it was kind of like a memory looking back at what that did for him and kind of brought him to the point where he was at the end of the uh the book and going back to the blanket Awkward silence. <laughs> Anybody? It's our because we can. Like, we were just like really, really amazed by your really beautiful speech. Was, was it touching you, Brian? Was it touching you deep? In it's all not- the right places. <laughs> it was well said, and it, it's good to hear other people's really personal reactions to the story <laughs> as a testament to like how powerful it is as a work of memoir. But also, what was happening just then was I think we were kind of looking at the pictures on Skype, like, "Oh, would you guys like to say something?" You know, obviously you can't see our faces. So, <laughs> the, uh, Jamie, Chris, in Ireland, anything you wanted to respond to so far? With the, I suppose, the relationship side of things, I. Yeah, I, I don't think that she's supposed to be this 
perfect girl woman and um, uh, that it's it's his perception of what she was at that time to him that you know he was so kind of was pulled down by religion that no matter what choices he wanted to make was he had you know um, it was dictated by what the bible said by what his parents said by what his teachers or uh, preachers said that uh, when he finally got into a relationship he put everything into that and put her up on this pedestal that she was she, she was almost god to him that he was choosing her as his kind of religion and that he struggled with going from i suppose christianity to to the worship of, of of her as his girlfriend for for those two weeks and i i could relate to it on a personal level as well you you've got this guy who is going to this girl and she's invited him there and he's like oh well, what's going to happen are we are we going to be boyfriend and girlfriend is what kind of relationship we're going to have and then when he gets this relationship when he thinks it's going to be enough then he starts doubting it already and starts having these paranoid feelings of she doesn't want to be with me or why are we with friends why can't we just have these moments on our own and it, it kind of encapsulated a lot of of a long a long term relationship within the space of two weeks. So there there was a lot there that um I that spoke to me personally, but also was just really good storytelling technique that that was able to um, say so much with so little. And um, I mean, there's loads of panels in there that was that was just a look or a movement or a hug that that was really just spoke a lot of volumes to me. Yeah. Just yeah. ended the lesson. <laughs> I think the only thing I have to add was that I agree very much that it's about perception of his first relationship. I think the only thing that when I was looking at it again, that kind of raised a red flag for me with like the manic pixie dream girl trope was whenever they end their two weeks and then she just kind of like leaves. And that's very true to life, I think. Personally, like, I think that you never quite, and especially in the first relationship, understand why somebody's leaving you. But I do think that, like, upon, like, being older when I read it, I was like, oh, that's kind of, like, a weird a weird red flag for that to happen. But I understand why. But it was just crazy because I wanted more. I, I, like, think that the entire, like, the two-week span where he's there is, it's like they're kind of, like, for me, like, that span and then the span man with him at home dealing with religion like those are the two strongest aspects and that two weeks is like endlessly fascinating for me like reading it a second time it's kind of interesting like you're like looking for clues and there kind of are clues to like what she's like and like him and her relationship and what could fall apart between it and I think that if you like are paying attention deeply like she is very complicated to say the least like I think there's a lot going on under the surface and I think that even that's more true to his perception of it because he knew a lot about her but he didn't know everything but I think that he could tell there was more there um, which I think is what makes that relationship so like amazing to watch or to read for you know I know it's all from his perspective but for you know she was the one that initiated the visit. Come to see me. You know, come to my family here. Do you think that? And you know, it was for two weeks. Do you think that, in a way, she was using him for an escape for two weeks, knowing that you know, over that time frame, that he was going to go back? I didn't read. I didn't read into that as first, but as it, it came near to the end of their travel of their their two weeks together, it just felt. That she was just getting good from him. And I, I don't think that she was being 100% selfish, but there was something there that she needed somebody there for her and that she couldn't reciprocate in the way that he wanted to as much. Just an observation. I don't know. I mean, there's probably something there. I, I don't know if I would word, use the word use just because yeah, yeah, it has like such a negative connotation. Yeah. But I mean, I definitely think just looking at like the character and her relationships with her siblings and the responsibilities she felt to. Uh, to take care of them, to take care of the younger ones, and to take care of her her niece. Is it a niece or a yeah, nephew? Niece. It's a niece. niece um, yeah. 
I definitely think that, like, looking at it from her perspective, it was a little bit of an escape. And not like a, I'm going to use you, but more like a, like, the same way that she was his escape kind of from his upbringing. He became like a a life raft a little bit Mm. for those two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think it's a fair question to ask also because when you're really into the story and it's so from his perspective he shows a lot but definitely you're hearing his voice for the most part you're seeing what he sees when Mm. things sort of fade away at the end it feels unexpected and you almost uh, i definitely the first time i read it had a sensation of whoa i thought they were in love what's going on here um so i like i think it's even something it's a a feeling that craig thompson has sort of engineered for you to have i think the experience of reading the comic, uh, some things that we've talked about, about how the panels are just these often very intense moments. And also something people should be aware of is that this is a real tome. It's definitely it's like bigger on your shelf than Gone with the Wind. And you really sink into the story. And those two weeks really spread out in a way that I think is reminiscent of the experience of adolescence. Probably, mm. I would imagine that they were both like, yeah, let's get together as soon as we can for as long as we can and not really thinking very much about what would happen afterwards. That would be mine. My- Yes. Agreed. Cool. In so many words. Yes, basically. <laughs> Good question, though. And it is interesting to sort of try to recreate what was going on with Reina at the time. Um, figure out what her deal was and maybe what the experience would have been like for her. I think I agree with what you guys have all said, what Brian was saying before, that definitely what we're seeing is sort of the guy's perception looking back. And also, I think... Craig does a a really good job of explaining why he wasn't really like if he was idealizing her and he is honest about that. Um, So it's not it's not as problematic as like the manic pixie dream girl trope. But it is so appealing (laughs) as a story that we get so often. I I also think just and it's funny because I I kind of always like to step lightly because like as anyone who reads our website or has listened to me on any podcast before knows my feelings on women in comics and female characters in general and how underused and undervalued I think they are by the world at large but I think it's interesting in something like this that is that it's a memoir and it is his memoir and you know first of all in any memoir that that's the story from that person's point of view Mm. and then taking it a step further this is you know a graphic novel which most people i'm sure a lot of our listeners are very familiar with the many different genres that graphic novel can can take but to the outside world it's generally thought of as you know superheroes or you know funny animals maybe so i I think i'm sure that he wanted to be very careful because he's not dealing with a character he created he's dealing with as far as we know a real person Mm -hmm. and he is describing it from his point of view but i'm sure that he wasn't going to go in and put thoughts and motivations in her head because she wasn't a character he created she's a real person that he's writing about Mm -hmm. so that that to me creates an interesting thing i don't know if i would necessarily sit and say like she's this dream girl and i wish i knew what she was thinking because i know that if someone wrote a memoir about their life and i was in it i wouldn't want them to ascribe motivations to me especially from something that i did like 15 years ago Mm. brian that's a lovely point but i'm just focused on the fact that you said comics about funny animals i just i just want to read those now you can get them for a nickel down at the (laughs) uh down at the dollar store I, that just made no sense. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to go. Like, wait, what? Dated reference. I was going to say Very the Nickelodeon. Really <laughs> no. I'm going to go grab my bowler hat and take a stroll. Yeah. Well, taking a picture show. 
Um, <laughs> well, uh, one of the ways that we do get to know Rena is through her interactions with her family. I think without seeing how selfless she is there, um, it would <laughs> be really difficult to like her. <laughs> but her family situation is difficult, much like Craig's, but also really charming in its own way and admirable in its own way. So we'll pick up with that thread and maybe come up with like a concrete question to ask people in the next segment. And here we are back to talk about family. We see representations of two families in this story in Blankets. And I think they're both really intimate and intense uh, and both really enjoyable in their own way. Enjoyable is a word word, but uh, well represented. So how do people feel about these families? Did you relate to uh, one or the other? Was anything really resonant about the depictions of families in this book for anyone? I'll, I'll go for it. Um, yeah, thanks. I think, the, um, I, I think it comes back to, to the perception. I mean, if you look at, if you see how he sees his father, for example, when he's a, when he's a child, this kind of he's drawn as this big ogre of a man and every action he does is is exaggerated and and over and, and over the top, and he, he's he's building up as this monster. And and I, I when you're a child, and when you think back to childhood memories, that when your family, brothers or sisters, you do heighten things up. You you do create things that um you add your imagination to. I mean, me talking to my father now, or having an argument with my father now, and having an argument when I'm a, when I'm a child, there's a different perception there. So uh, I think he really captured that really well all that fear that um that's behind the, the i suppose the the, the, the father son relationship because you don't really see the mother's mentioned as this holy person but you don't really see her that much throughout the the book she she comes in and she goes out but um the only real family that they really have um seems to be a representation of the father and the rest of the time it's two brothers um fighting yet loving each other as well i i, I thought the the sweetest thing that I saw in the book was when they had to move rooms and they got their own beds. And then, but they were so used to sharing a bed that they would come back and they create reasons to come back and stay together. And that really rang true to me because of the relationship they'd built up. On the other hand, you've got Raina's family, who's like really the adult of that family, because she has to pass messages on from her mother to her father and vice versa and taking up the roles that they would normally do. And I've seen that in, in, in other friends and families that I've seen there. So the, it was it was a very real, it was, I suppose, it's the most real comic I've read in a while that when it came to representation of family. That's me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think we would all, uh, well, I would hope we would all agree. I definitely was saying before that I relate so much to Phil and Craig's relationship. I I have three brothers, and I think that brothers are the best people on earth. But also, there are moments, uh, certainly, uh, like we were saying before, there are moments of brutality in childhood that you remember as being really frightening or really intense. And in some cases, they were, but also it's because the adults in your life have larger than life presence and also because your world is so small as a child. I think one of the things that makes uh, this book so intense is because it's dealing with a bunch of capsule worlds like Craig's family in the beginning as a child and then like the two-week relationship with him and Raina. Just these small moments that 
expands to infinity in the person's remembrance of how important things are, the perspective of memoir. But I can remember like uh, my brother is getting into a fight and breaking the dining room table and it feeling like, oh, my parents are going to kill all of us. Our lives are over. I don't imagine how life goes on after this. Um, and obviously it did because we're all still here. Um, but also <laughs> <Thankfully>. <laughs> the way that they foster each other, too, uh, I think is really touching. Uh, I will talk about art later, but this is also the story of Craig becoming an artist. And in some ways, Raina is the person that kicks that off, but also Phil is a partner in that in the beginning. And maybe it would be a good question to ask, like, did Raina change Craig or did she sort of help him refine the self that was at the beginning of the story? I would say yes and yes. Oh. Yeah, both. To the- <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then on top of that, the end of the relationship really brought it to fruition because he lost the idea of perfection and all this other stuff. And yeah. I def. Oh wait, Angel, do you want to go? Because okay. you definitely said yes I was to just, that question. Yes and yes. Oh. Like <laughs> Angel's like, no relationships. Yes, I feel like no matter what, will change you as a person. Mm-hmm. So even if it was a bad thing or a good thing, there's always like change is inevitable, no matter who you meet and what you do. So yeah, <laughs> I was actually gonna say yes. I think that she. I think that I would actually say I think she more refined what the change that was already happening with him than I think she changed him because it seemed like he was kind of. To me, at least, I feel like the story is a lot of this will actually be a great topic if everyone talk about it. But mm-hmm. I think that it's a story of accepting yourself for who you are in a lot of senses. And so I think that she helped him realize that he wasn't going to be able to just deal with having validation from another person. Mm-hmm. He couldn't just have her saying, oh, your art's good. And like I, I like you a lot. Or even like the little notes, like I love you, too. I think he realized that he needed a little bit more than that. Like he needed to find, I think he was constantly searching at least for affirmation for other people, like from his family or from um, that minister that he used to talk to all the time about going into the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I think he kind of realizes at the end that things are temporary and change, but he has to accept and define for himself who he is. And I think she's a big part of that. And then relating to back to the discussion of families, I think that the relationship he has with his parents is really interesting because they're not necessarily, I mean, they do punish him brutally but i think that that kind of attributes itself to the i'm a younger child so to me it feels more brutal but as he gets older and he kind of goes back to his family and he, they're like we love you so much and they're like and we hope you find a church soon and i don't have that same relationship but i do feel like there was a point in my life where i was like what if i'm not terribly religious when my parents still love me and i think it's very nice that even though he has a lot of difficulty with religion his family ultimately like is always going to love him and i think that's a really strong bond as opposed to reina who has a very disparate family that's like all over the place and nobody's connecting mm. Anything else on family? I have to say, though, like the first, I guess, three pages when the dad like drags the little boy into the cubby hole. Like, I get the monsters were imaginary, but were there actually spiders in there? Like, I, I, think, so. I think the spiders <laughs> were real. Yeah, I thought so. That's, that's really horrifying. <laughs> not, not the cubby hole, the spiders. <laughs> yeah, the spiders. <laughs> well, it's also just the fact that they left them in there. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a lot really horrifying but i feel like that's also could be like not necessarily a reflection of his parents but i think that there are a lot of um like yesterday me and my friends were talking about like kind of outdated methods of uh, not child using that's yeah like childhood like i feel like there was a period of time there where it was like you have to be stern with your kids and now we've definitely transitioned into this period of oh like make sure you don't like like praise them a lot because like they're really fragile and you don't want them to have bad self self-esteem which i don't think is bad i'm i'm saying that in like a term of like oh yeah screw those people we need to get some like hair on these kids chests um that's not how i feel um but i do think that in some senses you can attribute that to like i think that he was growing up it seemed like in the 80s 
That's um, right. Yeah. I don't know. Well, we were talking about bully movies in the 80s. <laughs> so like, say, we could talk about the 80s bully movies The now. golden age of bullying. <laughs> it was. It was. They depicted it, it in the book. Was. It's relevant. Does um, that mean we're now in the silver age of bullying? <laughs> that's that's sad. Like it's we're, more, in the, it's, we're in the cyber age of bullying. Yeah, cyber age, Oh, man. true. Very true. Um, Which, is that worse? It's way worse. It's I, <laughs> I think it's way worse. <laughs> I do want to say it's four minutes to eight. Okay. So, so right. yeah. Um, Wrap it up, B. I, I kind of a transition talking about family. Uh, one of the things also that impressed me when I first read the book, and I think is still impressive, is Craig's depiction of Laura and Ben. These are the family members that Raina is responsible for taking care of and they're developmentally disabled. And they're both shown as really lovable, but also really formidable people like uh, really concrete people that are lovable and loving but also difficult and it's a really full depiction of them and I think that the art especially contributes to that the fact that they are always uh, well uh, they're often smiling they're often friendly but also they're so much bigger than the other characters and that's something that you can do with cartooning that I think you can't in the film for example but so that'll take us into the art I'm sure everyone has a lot of things they want to say about that and I'll come up with a real question <laughs> in the next segment. So we want to make sure that we talk about the art, which is what puts a story that's sort of a, kind of a typical coming of age story really over and really makes it Craig's story and a true individual memoir. And Jamie had a really good thought about a moment that she particularly liked in terms of the art. You can almost consider it a close reading, but I can't give you a page number. Mm -hmm. But as Kathy was talking about in the previous segment, how um, his art really contributes to the depiction of Laura and Ben, there's an amazing panel, probably about two-thirds of the way through, where he's saying that Laura is really beautiful when she's standing still, and there's one panel of her standing still, and the next one is just of her like smiling and laughing. And it's very, every time I see it, I just can't help but smile because it's just, it's a very nice statement about a person, but it's also a very nice statement that isn't normal about somebody who has like an issue. And even like, if you think about like relationships between religion and people who are disabled, like he's always, it's very nice in some senses and it might be self-congratulatory. I doubt it, but Craig's always really great with them. And I think that's really clear through the art. And I love the art also because I love stylistic art that somehow reaches a the truth and everything about the art is very stylistic and it's Craig's approach which is appropriate because it's his perception of his life but at the same time like I think there is a transition of the art that occurs when he meets Raina and everything becomes like beautiful mm. and perfect even like her family and her and even he like looks better <laughs> literally like when I, they show him as a teenager I'm like oh like a teenager and then like, they show him with Raina and I'm like wow they're such a hot couple I'm like I'd want to hang out around them and be like their third wheel because they're so great <laughs> I think uh, I was a big fan of the art. And um, I think, like, just, just to pick up on one of the threads Jamie just said, I, I think it's very interesting. Again, like, I, I was talking about how it's a memoir before. And um, I, I think it's fascinating. Like, you have a memoir, which is essentially set in reality with this incredibly fantastic, at times, impressionistic art style. And um, I can't think of any specific pages off the top of my head because I don't have it in front of me. But uh, I loved the use of shapes and the use of, like, figure representative figures coming out of the shapes and etc and, and just generally i found it very interesting to have a you know especially like looking at it you know in the field of comics you always see so many absurd unreal things drawn to look very realistic and here we have like an entirely flipped coin of a real coming of age story memoir drawn in this incredibly artistic impressionistic 
almost um it reminded me of like um I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie Big Fish. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. It uh it sort of reminded me of that like that dreamlike quality that certain sequences in that movie have where just like it's telling uh, you know it, it, the the book is telling a a true story but accentuated almost by like the truth of the feelings that he had at the time is accentuated in the environments of the book, which I thought was a really cool uh cool thing to do. Any other thoughts on the art? Generally, I'm personally not a fan of uh the black and white, just because I'd rather, I'm going to have a picture look at I'd rather be in color, but I thought the black and white really uh, worked for it. And like everyone was saying with the transition of how everything looked to start off kind of like, I don't want to say gritty, but maybe a little less uh, well put together on purpose and then became beautiful. And then the different transitions, it was very lucid. Like it was, it was a memory. It was um, going through his mind and how things changed of his perception. And then like the certain times, like where he was in the Cubby and talking about the spiders looking like monsters, or like certain actions looked like monsters or things popping out. It was very dreamlike. It was very based in this is my mind, this is my memories, and I'm writing myself in artistic form of how I remembered this period of time. Especially when you get into like the writing of adding it with the art. It was very artistically done in how he tried to um, transcribe his thoughts and put it to a story. Mm. I think um, it. While it is a powerful story, it wouldn't, I don't think it'd be as powerful if he, if the art style was more realistic, you know, if it was, it was more, I suppose, filmic in a way, more detailed, you know, it would be, I think it would be weirdly too much to, you wouldn't be able to um, get so involved if he, if he'd chosen to go another way with it. Um, I think it's, I quite like black and white really, but I think that comes from my love of all movies. I, I just thought the, the art was fantastic, and as as it changed, it changed throughout the book because you've got this kind of energy at the start from remembering all this frantic uh, childhood memories to it kind of slowing down in in pace and in gesture when he's away for those two weeks. And I mean, there's pages there with no dialogue at all, where he just wakes up in the morning, he gets breakfast, he hugs Raina to go out and to walk into this silent white forest of of snow, and I I, I think. Part of why it's so successful, it's powerful, is because of wh- of how he drew it, how, how how what choices he made when it comes to how cartoonish or not his characters looked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry if I interrupted anyone there. No, you didn't. Like no, that was great. And I was doing the thing looking around to see if anyone else had something they wanted <laughs> the to talk about. awkward silence. Yeah. Of decision making. I, um, I also agree. I like the black and white. I was talking to Kathy before, actually. I thought it helped make the comic more mature looking mm. black and white is always an interesting color palette to choose from because it's it's very simple it's just two colors but it also it's very dramatic as well and i feel like it helps create the mood and the image in the comics and in, i think if you chose color i would have liked it less <laughs> it's also very nice that there's a lot of snow mm. and especially i love the i was reading it again today and i loved the end where he's like it's very comforting to he doesn't say imprint but he's like to make a imprint on the snow like even though you know it's temporary mm. and i think that all of the issue like the snow we didn't even talk i mean there's so much to talk about we didn't talk about like it's mostly michigan and i'm canadian so i like have another relation to like that kind of weather and that kind of place so i think that the black and white is great especially because there's such a large usage of the outdoors and i always love it when it's black and white and they have snow for some reason i just really enjoy the way that looks like when they draw little snowflakes i think it's like the prettiest thing i've ever seen in my life it's a really beautiful book um mm-hmm. 
And so excellent word to describe it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, let's just turn off the recording equipment. Go home. Podcast done. <laughs> um, yeah, just like my my closing bit about the art is there's this there's this device that Craig Thompson uses to show his growth as an artist and also as an adult where he tells the story of the picture of the naked woman that he drew as a child. And so that simplistic profile of a naked woman that haunts him at sometimes and then finally turns into the beautiful Reyna when he accepts both his skill and his sexuality to some extent uh, happens at the same time. And the device of the actual simple line drawing becoming something really beautiful and intense uh, works especially well. And it's something that you couldn't do in movies or books, which is why comics are the best. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little biased on that opinion, <laughs> but bias aside, they are the best. Yeah. So, um, any closing arguments or, or statements <laughs> or anything like that? Shit was dope. Good. So. Yeah, I agree. Shit. Blankets is very pretty and very nice. Yeah. Angela? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think she liked it's left, it. It's left Angela <laughs> speechless. Yes. Go with that. Read okay. it. Like, even if you're the kind of person who usually, like, only reads superhero comics or, mm-hmm. or whatever, read it. Or funny animals. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, read it. It's it, it's as good as any coming-of-age movie you're going to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Like I said, I went in skeptical as shit. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. And by the end, I'm like, I don't even remember, like, the time passing by because I liked it so much, so. Yeah, that is a great endorsement when a piece of art is a time machine. That's the best that Mm -hmm. you can hope for. Okay, so thank you for stopping in with us. Uh, Check back for the next Comics First podcast, which is going to be another book that you possibly haven't read, but definitely should. I believe the cartoon history of the universe. And that's another one that is going to be really great to talk about. A nice change of pace for people who maybe are tired of hearing about Jean Grey, but I don't know who that could be. It's definitely Um, not Kathy. Definitely not me. Kathy always wants to hear about always Jane Grey. Always want to hear about her. I want to talk about her. I want to give her a kiss. You can find <laughs> Comicsverse at comicsverse.com. At <laughs> what did I just walk into of anti-Jean Grey? May I use your, may I use your, uh, um, Jamie, I'm going to need a fill-in here. What, what's going on? All right. All right. I got I to gotta go. Thanks, Justin. All right. Thanks, love you all. Our, all right, Kathy. Our president, Justin, just stopped by to remind me to remind you. The tugboat is back on the, our chief, uh, the trail. Our chief executive officer just stopped by to remind me to tell you for sure that you can find Comics First on the web all over that thing at comicsverse.com, at facebook.com slash comicverse, on Twitter at comicsverse, on Instagram, you hashtag comicsverse, and our cool YouTube channel. It's been great talking with all of you. Thanks. And Tumblr. Oh, Tumblr. I'm sorry. Mm, Tumblr too. Comics first. Don't insult the Tumblr. Kathy, stop insulting me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Um, It's been great talking with all of you. Thanks, Chris, for calling in from across the Atlantic Ocean. It's been great having you. (laughs) Thanks, other Chris, for sitting in the room with us. You're very welcome. Angela, for holding him down and keeping the old intern flavor on the beat. (laughs) Thank you, Jamie. You'll be back for the next one. Probably some other people on this one, too, but I didn't remember. And so I just said, Jamie. And thank you, Brian, for sitting at that soundboard and saying good things. And thank you, Justin, for shouting at all of us (laughs) and giving us something to do. Everyone, come on back next time. But before you do, get a copy of Blankets and put it under your pillow. Good night.